Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, we are going to talk about trade negotiations. We're very excited to have with us today Wendy Cutler. Wendy is the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. But Wendy, for many years, was a senior negotiating official at the Office of the United States Trade Representative. Wendy, hello. Hello. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what trade agreements you negotiated. Sure. So I started at USTR in 1988 and started at then. It was called the GATT office. It was before the WTO was created. And at that time, I worked on the Uruguay round negotiations on non-tariff measures um, and then later on, I worked in a, the WTO financial services negotiations. But in addition to working in the GATT and the WTO, I also worked almost exclusively with Asia during the last 20 years of my career. Um, I worked on sectoral negotiations with Japan in sectors such as autos and insurance and um, agriculture. And then I was the lead negotiator for the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement and then also renegotiated the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement in 2010. And then as acting deputy USTR, I oversaw the TPP negotiations and was the lead negotiator with Japan in the TPP negotiations, working primarily on autos and agriculture. So those sound like pretty tricky areas to negotiate, if you ask me. How do you feel about being referred to as one of these uh, dumb incompetent trade negotiators. We have incompetent people negotiating trade. We are losing money at every single step. We don't make good deals anymore. Well, I try and keep my sense of humor, and I've, I've really developed thick skin as a trade negotiator because one of the things you learn early on in your career is you're going to get it from all sides. The stakeholders think you haven't gotten enough. Congress is typically critical. And then you go and meet with your negotiating partner, and they also are not receptive to your proposals. So you constantly feel under siege. And I've been insulted in ways that I, I just let bounce off me. And so when statements were made by the new administration about how incompetent former negotiators were, I just kind of let that roll off me. So trade negotiators have no friends, essentially. <laughs> well, not only don't we have friends, but as a good trade negotiator, you could not like to be liked. That, that really undermines your effectiveness. I'm not saying you have to be mean to everyone, but people aren't going to like you by definition because everyone wants more, except our trading partners typically want less. And so you're constantly under siege and being criticized. One thing I'm really interested in is the kinds of pushback you get when you're negotiating with foreign counterparts. What, what are the kinds of pushback you get from them? You get all types of pushback from you should learn the material before you come to the negotiating table. You should understand what the U.S. does in this area before you ask us to do this. Your hands are not clean. I've been told that they can no longer work with me and they're going to have their boss contact my boss to find someone who's more reasonable. And the list goes on and on. So thick skin sounds important. What else do you need to have as skills to be a good trade negotiator? Well, I think one of the most important characteristics of a good trade negotiator is the ability to listen and not talk all the time. And this doesn't come naturally to Americans. We always like to fill up the space, it seems. 
And through the years, I've worked with a number of political bosses and really have had to train them at the negotiating table and literally pass them notes to say, why don't you stop talking and let's listen to what the other side is saying. And listening is important for a number of reasons. Number one, it just accords respect to your counterpart. But second, if you really listen to their concerns and their priorities, a lot of times it's easier to troubleshoot an issue or to solve a problem because sometimes they don't like your proposal, but they don't like it for reasons that you never, you never imagined. And so if you understand their concerns, sometimes it's just easier to bridge the differences with them. Wendy, can we get some war stories from you? So, so can you talk about the toughest trade negotiations you've, you've ever been in? Yeah, I think by far the toughest trade negotiations I participated in was the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement negotiations. And the initial negotiation was concluded about 10 years ago. And at that time, Korea was not the most open economy. And there was a lot of domestic pushback on my Korean counterpart. So they felt they were under enormous political pressure all of the time. And then our negotiating venues were surrounded by protesters, sometimes which went into the thousands. And so we weren't even able to leave the hotel. There was still some anti-Americanism in Korea, but there was also a fear that if Korea opened up to the U.S., that their farmers in particular would suffer, but also their service suppliers, their small mom and pop shops, etc. So there just was a groundswell of opposition towards this agreement. That translated into my counterparts who therefore felt they needed to be very tough, and Koreans are tough negotiators even without the pressure. And we were also under a very tight deadline, and that was because trade promotion authority was going to expire by a certain date. And if we didn't complete the negotiation by that date, this agreement would not be covered by TPA. So TPA is trade promotion authority. This is the the authority that Congress gives the president to actually go out and negotiate a trade deal and then bring it back to the Congress for just an up or down vote without subsequent amendments. And these are typically time limited. And so the negotiations on the U.S. side have to be done before that expires. So all of these pressures came to bear at the negotiating table and just made it a really tough negotiation, but actually one of the most rewarding ones as well, because everyone um, who I spoke to really thought we would fail and we succeeded. And this Korea negotiations originally was taking place back the first time in 2006, 2007. It wasn't like today where Korea has all of these free trade agreements with lots and lots of countries. Back then, Korea was part of the WTO, but didn't have FTAs with anybody. So the, the well, first- it actually had an, it, it had an agreement with Chile. And my understanding is that Korea initiated negotiations with Chile because the United States had just finished negotiations with Chile. And they really wanted to learn how to negotiate with the United States. Interesting. So they, they anticipated they were going to have to negotiate with the United States and, and they wanted to get some practice in before they went down that path. Fascinating. But I can imagine as well, as you're sitting down to negotiate in these deals, you've got to become an expert on all kinds of strange things. So were there weird things you ended up negotiating over? Well, the weirdest sector that comes to mind is the beef sector. And this is for a number of reasons. Number one, there were a lot of parts of a cow that were consumed in Asia, which are not consumed in the U.S. So not only did you have to learn about the meat, 
but you had to learn about all these different parts of a cow, which I would prefer not to have learned in detail. But what was also was striking to me was that when I worked on opening beef markets in Asia during the BSE scare in the United States, when certain cows were found in the United States um, stricken with the BSE disease. So this I, is the this is the mad cow disease. The mad cow disease, yeah. right? I learned that the age of cows was a very important factor, and this was because. If you found the mad cow disease in a cow over 30 months, it wasn't as important because most countries didn't import um, beef from cows that were over 30 months. But if you found BSE in cows under 30 months, this was a really serious problem. But here's the deal. Who knows how old the cow is? They don't have um, labels on them. They don't have little their birth dates on their um, next to their cowbells underneath on their collar. And the way that our experts had to find the age of any cow was to look for their birth records, and that was difficult. And so what everyone relied on was looking at their teeth. And literally, if a cow died, people would take photos of the cow's teeth. So I would be emailing these horrible photos of a cow's mouth of really old teeth to my counterpart, trying to convince him that this cow was over 30 months, and therefore, this was not a serious problem, and they, and they should keep their market open. <laughs> so, so this is like CSI, trade negotiator, bovine scientist. Um, that is very, very strange. <laughs> So as a trade negotiator, your job wasn't just negotiating in the context of these big mega deals. It was also negotiating on a product by product basis when another country decided that for some reason they just wouldn't let any American product in. So, Wendy, we've introduced you as the greatest negotiator that the United States has ever had. But even the greatest negotiators probably have made one or two mistakes in their history. So mm -hmm. do you have any skeletons in your closet? Well, one miscalculation comes to mind, and this was also in the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement, and that is at the beginning of any negotiation, you exchange requests and offers on um, tariffs, and each side on the same day at the same time exchanges their offers, and that's basically what they're willing to do. Of all their tariffs, how quickly they're willing to bring them down to zero. And you can understand that this is a real calculation by each side. You want to be forthcoming, but on the other hand, you don't want to give away the store. And if you're too forthcoming and the other side is pretty restrictive, you look like you've already made too many concessions. So there's a lot of internal discussions trying to game out the perfect offer. And in the U.S. free trade agreement, the U.S.-Korea free trade agreement, and when I look back, I think we really miscalculated, and that miscalculation had an effect on the first few months of the negotiation. And that is that at the end of the day, we concluded that Korea's tariff offer would not be forthcoming, and therefore, we put forward a pretty restrictive offer. But in the meantime, Korea thought we would put forward a really forthcoming offer, so they did everything they could and, and, and put forward an offer which um, was very forthcoming and, frankly, were embarrassed and got a lot of pushback domestically for putting too many concessions on the table up front. So what happened was that the Korea 
feeling embarrassed and feeling um, that they miscalculated put a lot of pressure on us to up our offer immediately and over the first few months of the negotiation. And it also meant when they put forward proposals on rules or responded to our proposals, I think they remembered this experience and really held back more than they would have if we had put forward a, a bolder offer in the beginning. And, uh, and, and so by bolder offer, what do you mean? The, the number of tariffs you're willing to cut, how deeply you're willing to cut them? Is there any specifics you can tell us? Yeah. How many, what percentage of your products are you willing to move to zero on entry into force into the agreement? How many products do you want five years of tariff decreases or 10 years of staging? All of that. So once again, we put forward an offer that um, was pretty restrictive, and we made that decision to do it. And we had discussion, and, and I really regret not chiming in that we should give Korea the benefit of the doubt. We're the United States. We want to do this agreement quickly. Let's try and be bold. The team that was negotiating this deal were taking such huge risks anyway domestically that they were all in. And they wanted to feel like they were equal partners with the United States. And once again, they miscalculated um, how bold we would be. And I think they paid for it domestically and we paid for it in the negotiation. So I want to talk about some negotiations that are ongoing. So in, say, the NAFTA renegotiations, I wouldn't have thought that there would be such offers of tariff cuts because on most products, tariffs are already zero. So so what else is unusual about the NAFTA negotiations that you can tell? Well, I think at the start, they had a very unrealistic expectation of how long these negotiations would take. I think people at the top of this administration thought that we could maybe complete these negotiations in a few months. It's obviously taken longer. Well, I think it was just an overconfidence that we can go in the room, we're great negotiators, and we can quickly get the other side to agree with our proposals. In addition, in the beginning, one of the mistakes they made was they announced that, unlike other negotiations, there'd be a NAFTA round every month. And I think they greatly underestimated how much work needs to be done at home in between rounds. And that is a lot of consultations are needed with stakeholders in Congress, but you need to work on your proposals in between each round. You need to answer the concerns and the questions the other side has had, and then you need to consult even further. And so I think it's been interesting to watch that those monthly rounds after you know, the first handful of rounds, quickly the intervals between each round over time expanded. So as a journalist covering this, it's been kind of interesting to see what messages are being released and what aren't. And and the negotiators' use of the media in, I think, trying to influence how the negotiations are going inside the room. Could, could you talk about that? Yes. And I always tell people, you need to take it with a grain of salt what's said publicly after each negotiating round because a lot of times the negotiators are really playing to their domestic audience. For example, they know at the end of the day they're going to have to move off a proposal, but they need to show their stakeholders and their legislatures that they're being really tough and they're not giving up. And so sometimes if you listen to the public statements, you could conclude that this negotiation is nowhere near conclusion. 
However, informally in the rooms, in the negotiating rooms, the negotiations are often much further along than the public is aware of. Well, one of the things I was always trained as a negotiator in making public statements is always lower expectations. Because once you raise expectations, then you can be accused of failing, not living up to the goals that you set for yourself. And if you lower the expectations of the public, then if you actually reach a deal, people are surprised and they think you did a great job. I'm a bit surprised in NAFTA and the statements made over the past few weeks where um, the um, Mexican Trade Secretary and Ambassador Lighthizer, I think, have both said that we're 80 percent done. I think that's really setting up the stage for an expectation that they will be successful in this negotiation. And frankly, they probably will be. But if they're not, I think they've set themselves up for more criticism than, than necessary. So we've spent a number of episodes of our podcast talking about the NAFTA negotiations, but I'm curious from your perspective, are there specific proposals that, you know, in particular the Trump administration has put out that you were surprised at? The automotive rules of origin proposal came as a great surprise to me. And just to remind listeners who hopefully should know by now if they've listened to all the Trade Talks episodes, but rules of origin set the rules for what counts as a North American car and so can pass tariff-free under the deal. So tighter rules is more North American content, it's more restrictive. I wasn't surprised by the fact that the administration was seeking a higher value content for cars made in NAFTA that could enjoy the tariff benefits raising the current percentage of 62.5% to 85%. But what shocked me was that, in addition, they were asking that 50% of that percentage be comprised of production done in the United States. There was no way that Canada or Mexico could ever take a proposal home. They would never get the domestic support they needed. And so I wasn't surprised if it is true that the United States has already dropped that proposal and is focusing its efforts on coming up with an overall higher value content for all three countries. So as a negotiator, though, couldn't you see that as part of a strategy, sort of put forward this really extreme proposal and then everything else after that looks really reasonable? Well, you have to pass the red face test. And if you think you're going to get paid for every stupid proposal you put on the table, I think that's being naive. I think basically they wasted time in the negotiation. And if they were just focusing on how to raise the number for all three countries, they wouldn't feel so jammed now in terms of trying to deal with a very technical issue under a very tight time frame. So let's suppose they do come to a conclusion with the NAFTA negotiations and they get and they get that one out of the way. The Trump administration really seems intent on bilateral deals. And there's been a lot of talk about Japan. How do you see that playing out? Well, that will be interesting because Japan to date has been pretty clear that it's not interested in entering into bilateral trade negotiations with the United States. Remember, Japan undertook great political cost in entering the original TPP when we were members. Then they went on to lead the remaining TPP countries towards a successful agreement upon the U.S. exit. And so they view TPP as the preferred approach for a trade agreement with the United States, and they want the U.S. to come back to TPP. 
Is this all just about politics or are there certain specific things that they are really hesitant to negotiate just one-on-one with the United States? Well, I think that they are hesitant to enter into a bilateral trade negotiation with this administration when all types of new proposals and new demands could be put on the table. In particular, they're very concerned about agriculture. They feel that they gave as much as they could in TPP, and they fear that the United States, upon the requests from our Congress and our stakeholders in particular, might put forward proposals for more market access in areas like dairy or pork or rice. And politically, that would be very difficult for Japan, particularly as they have just signed the the CPTPP agreement, and they've also given agricultural market access to the EU in the recently signed bilateral free trade agreement. Can you talk about what the most controversial areas were when you were negotiating the TPP to to give an idea of what would be difficult in any new negotiation with Japan? Well, I think in particular the agriculture and auto sectors would be difficult. So in the automotive area, in the initial TPP agreement, we concluded a separate bilateral agreement with Japan on autos where we opened up the Japanese automotive market and we also agreed on long staging for U.S. tariff cuts on cars and trucks. And so that meant many, many years before the U.S. would have to get rid of the 2.5% tariff on cars and the 25% tariff on trucks, which is the really big one. Right. 25 years for um, the elimination of our automotive tariff and 30 years before we would have to eliminate our tariff on trucks I think these are the longest staging periods ever negotiated in in a trade agreement. But I suspect that this administration will want more on autos, and I think this is evident by their concerns with the bilateral trade deficit and their view that the large a large part of our bilateral trade deficit with Japan is due to the imbalance in automotive trade. And one of the issues here that I suspect they will put priority on is restricting the rules of origin for auto and auto parts. In other words, making it even more difficult for auto and auto parts from Japan to qualify for any tariff cuts. The last three issues that were on the docket at at the final hours of the TPP negotiations in 2015 were automotive rules of origin dairy market access, and data protection for biologic drugs. Auto rules of origin was one of the last issues that we successfully resolved in TPP to pave the way for the conclusion of the agreement in 2015. So the point I'm trying to make is TPP rules of origin was already a contentious issue even before um, the Trump administration started renegotiating NAFTA. So, Wendy, suppose you went back to USTR and you were advising the Trump administration on what their strategy should be with Japan. What would you advise them to do? The first thing I would advise them to do is to consult with U.S. stakeholders and U.S. Congress and try to reach a domestic agreement that we would not ask Japan to do anything more on agriculture. I think if Prime Minister Abe receives such an assurance, I think that he could be more flexible with respect to other issues, including automotive issues. But second, I would also advise the administration to think of 
rejoining TPP, and then see whether you can enter into a bilateral negotiation with Japan to build on TPP provisions and address some of the issues that were never addressed in TPP, such as cybersecurity or how to deal with new energy vehicles or how to build on existing TPP proposals. In other words, if the administration feels like it needs to do a bilateral agreement with Japan, do a TPP plus agreement, join the TPP, do a TPP plus bilateral agreement with Japan, Japan can claim that it got the United States back into TPP, and the United States can say, we have a bilateral with Japan. Sounds like a win-win-win. <laughs> Easier said than done, but that's what comes to my mind. You don't know until you try. <laughs> and that is all from Trade Talks. Thank you so much to Wendy Cutler, Vice President of the Asia Society Policy Institute. And one of the greatest trade negotiators ever. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As usual, tell all your friends, distant relatives, random trade geeks you meet about the podcast, and do send your feedback. I'm on Twitter at at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because seeing two sides of an issue makes you a more effective negotiator. That's outstanding. That is definitely not an incompetent or terrible negotiator. That's perfect.